Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 25th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is On the Trail of the Craigslist Killer, a case study in digital forensics. As listeners will know, we usually have a guest, but today Sharon and I are going to present one of the more amazing stories involving digital forensics, how the Craigslist killer was found. We've given this presentation twice now, John, and and audiences sure do seem to love it. Although we lack our PowerPoint images in a podcast, I think we can make you see the story through our words. We're sure going to give that a try. The idea for this presentation occurred to me earlier this year when the Boston police released their case files in the Craigslist killer case to the Boston Phoenix, which then published a remarkable story about the investigation in April of 2012. The story was so captivating that I had made some nice hot tea to sip while reading it, and the tea grew stone cold. I just couldn't take my eyes off the monitor as I was reading. So let's get to the story itself, and let me introduce you to the victim. Her name was Julissa Brisman, and she was 25 years old. Her parents thought she was working in a tanning salon in Boston, but in reality, she was a masseuse who advertised in Craigslist. She had been an alcoholic, self-admittedly, and was going to AA meetings regularly, She perhaps suffered from bipolar depression because they found that sort of medication in her room, and she had been arrested for theft multiple times. But she was trying to turn her life around in spite of what she was doing to make a living. She was nearing completion of a degree in the City College of New York, and she wanted to be a counselor. On the last day of Julissa's life, which was April 14, 2009, she was preparing to see her sixth and last client at 10 p.m. His name was Andy M., She was staying in the Boston Marriott Copley Plaza on the 20th floor. And the way she worked it is she had a partner in Denver by the name of Beth Solomonis, and she would post the ads on Craigslist. And there was a picture, of course, of Julissa looking very provocative and promising great company in addition to a great touch. Clients would communicate only with Beth, and when they got to the hotel, they would get Julissa's room number as a safety precaution. The videotapes, which were collected later from from the surveillance cameras, showed her client entering the lobby at 9.50. The photographs were grainy, and John will explain later why, but they showed a man who was tall, blonde, with a black leather jacket and a baseball cap, and he was texting. He called Beth, he got the room number, and the cameras showed him leaving the hotel at 10.06, So all of what happened happened in 16 minutes. And as we all know, it takes some time to grab the elevator and get up to the room, et cetera, and then to come back out. The reconstruction that the police did of the crime showed this. She opened the door and he pulled out a nine millimeter Luger pistol from inside his jacket and he began to bind her with flexicuffs. She fought back. He hit her with the gun multiple times And the doctors later said that although the injuries were severe, they would not have been life-threatening. He then fired three times. There were three bullets, one in the hip, one through a lung, and one through the heart. And that last one, of course, killed her instantly. 
She fell face first in the doorway, halfway out the door. The body was discovered first by Jane Greenberg and her son, Leo. They were in town to try to find a college for Leo to go to, and they heard screams. They saw the body, and at first they thought it was a sulking child, but another young woman who who was coming from the other direction realized it was a body. She called security. The security officer who came shook the lady by the shoulders and then realized that there was blood pouring from her back. There was no pulse. He called 911, and he believed she had been stabbed because of all the blood coming out of the back. Initially, the security officers who came on site had thought this was just a sleeping drunk, which I guess hotel security sees a lot. The detectives who were appointed to the case were homicide detectives Robert Kenny, James Freeman, and Daniel Duff. In the initial investigation, two of them arrived a little before 10.30, and the media cameras were already there in force outside. Kenny went to the hospital, and Julissa was pronounced dead at 10.36. The 20th floor was very quiet, but there were 31 officers and security guards present there. They found inside the room as they did a walkthrough, they found a bullet casing. They found blood. They found the mirrors on the wardrobe uh, had been shot. And they found in her Gucci handbag her student ID. They also found her cell phone in the bathroom. The first thing they did was they pulled the surveillance footage from the cameras. And they caught a break because four homicide detectives from District 4 said that on the previous Thursday, they had responded to a call across the street at the Weston Copley place. Trisha Leffler, a masseuse who advertised on Craigslist, had been tied up with flexicuffs, and she had been robbed at gunpoint. And we're going to stop here to let John talk to you a little bit about video surveillance. Well, that, that actually was one of the, the first things that, that they do in, it, in any crime scene, whether it's murder or, uh, you know, even if you're robbing a, a 7-Eleven, right? They, they grab all the video surveillance uh, tapes and, and, and run through all that stuff. And that's what they did in this case as, as well. So they, they grabbed the surveillance tapes. But I want to talk a little bit about video surveillance and privacy and electronic evidence and, and what all that stuff might mean. Uh, because certainly there's cameras everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're going to the mall or you're, you're at a gas station, you know, purchasing fuel or cigarettes or whatever you're doing. There's, there's video cameras all over the place, and you just have to look up, even in, even in elevators and in hotels. So how do these things operate? Essentially, they're hard drives. They're hard drives that record the video information, and, and not significantly unlike the DVRs that, that folks have to record TV shows, the video records onto the hard drive until such time as it needs more space and then it overwrites the old information. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the timing varies depending on the device. It might be a week's worth of video, two weeks, a month, three months, whatever. The hard drive sizes that are in these things will gauge how much data is re- is um, stored on those and for what period of time. But also they, they cut back on the resolution. As, as Sharon said earlier, the video, the video surveillance is a little bit grainy. It's grainy because they cut the resolution down. That means that the video size is smaller, which means they can store more on the hard drives. It also is dependent upon the number of cameras that they're recording onto these hard drives, et cetera. So you can kind of get a feel now for what that, that duration may be. Typically, it's in the week to 30-day period when, when you're talking about video video surveillance uh, systems. 
in the original days, all, all the stuff was proprietary as well. So they'd have proprietary compressions, they'd do all those things, and you had to go to the manufacturer or the vendor itself in order to extract the information off of it. Today, that's not necessarily true. More and more companies now are using standards-based uh, video files and or they're giving you utilities where you can extract the information from particular seconds or minutes of, of the, the recording and export that into a, into a usable uh, video format so that you can see it on a computer, whether it's an Apple or, or a Windows-based machine or whatever. So those are some of the, the things that, that happen within the, the video surveillance. The, the Boston police got very, very fortunate in this particular case because these video surveillance systems, they do timestamp. You've probably seen some of these on TV or on movies where you'll see the date and time roll around and the, the, the period. So when this murder occurred, they grabbed the information. They didn't have to look at everything. They only really wanted to take a look at that period of time that was near, uh, you know, several minutes before and several minutes after, if you will, the, um, the murder scene. So, and some of the, some of the other things that, that we, we know from, from video surveillances, if you've ever been to London, They've got cameras everywhere. They have more cameras per person than any other country in, in the world. They also have parabolic mics. These are the, the microphones that pick up sound on, on the streets, et cetera. And if you've ever been to an NFL football game, you see the guy with that big, clear, plastic parabolic dish. That's so that you can hear the sound coming off the field. It kind of accentuates that. Uh, the, the folks in, in London, they say they don't normally turn on those, those parabolic mics by default. They, they are off. So they're not listening to everyone and spying on everyone, but they, they can turn them on and they will turn them on if via all this video that they're saying they see something of interest and they say, ah, now we got to hear. So they'll flip, they'll flip those, those mics on. But also in the, uh, in the London subways, in the tube in, in London, there's an additional 6,000 cameras there. And in 2005, when they had the, the bombing in there, actually that video surveillance footage is what helped them find very, very quickly, I think it was less than 48 hours, find the suicide bombers that actually uh, went into the tubes and, and blew these things up and killed all those people. From a privacy perspective, we don't see, well, we, actually, we don't know how many cameras are in this country, in the U.S. Uh, MSNBC reported in 2011 that there were 30 million cameras that, were in, that have been installed since 9-11. So 9-11 really got a lot of folks thinking about whoa, maybe I need to, to, to get some video surveillance. You can even get these now uh, as part of your, your home alarm systems. They're options. They're, they're web-based access. So uh, you can actually get on the internet. Folks can, uh, they're triggered via motion. So you can get a text message or, or an email message when, when the video starts recording. Uh, we have friends of ours that actually put these in their homes to watch their pets. So then they know when their dog's sleeping on the couch so they can bust them and say, yeah, I saw you sleeping on the couch and here's the footage to prove it. But anyway. Well, one of the things, as you know, John, that we, we lecture about frequently and are asked to quote about to journalists is about privacy. And one of the things I say often is whatever privacy we have is because of the sheer volume of electronic data. If you come to the attention of the government from that moment on, you have no privacy. And I really believe that to be true. And this story is illustrative of how fast they can target you and how fast they can find you. 
But but they even they 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 even did that in the uh, Simpsons movie. Remember that, that yeah, one scene? Yeah, we got were... one. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> I did I did love that line, <laughs> and I can imagine only imagine how seldom that happens. <laughs> We've seen the search list of terms that they they use to for email screening and so forth, and some of them are right. seem pretty silly to us. But anyway, yeah, the, the trick. We are now points, on yeah. April fifteenth, and the police are starting to add things up. In the two incidences, they basically had the same guns, they had the same white flexicuffs, and in the other incident the second one they had the duct tape with a fingerprint and they were very happy briefly uh, but the duct tape didn't help them because the fingerprint wasn't in the database so this guy had not been arrested before Uh, they had the video showing that it was probably the same guy and their next stop and isn't this the new world of law enforcement their next stop was craigslist itself and at 1 a.m remember she had been killed at about 10 the night before at 1 a.m they already had julissa's ad on craigslist so that was that was fast and you might remember that i said they found her smartphone there was no pin on that smartphone which which was very helpful to the investigation the marriott was secured at 3 30 a.m and she hadn't used her own name when she checked in as you can imagine but she did ha- they did have her student ID and they tried to send a cruiser out to her home address to talk to her family but she had moved so they found a mom listing in the phone because it was unsecured and they dialed it and they did so because they were afraid that the media w- was going to get there first and they didn't want that to happen unfortunately Julissa's mom did not speak English and so they had to relate to the 15 year old half sister that she had been injured and did not survive so it, it was not the way you would want it to go and John maybe you can talk a little bit about what we've seen in the explosive growth in smartphones and evidence uh, yeah cer- certainly digital forensics has has moved into the into the smartphone uh, arena we used to get nothing but laptops desktops etc and and very few of of the smartphones or at least the cell phones but but today we're getting all kinds of evidence off of these things we're we're doing all sorts of investigations uh, with smartphones we're able to retrieve text messages and email messages and photographs and and pieces of conversations etc et and and regular listeners will We'll know that we had Andrew Hogan before previously to talk about smartphones, and so I'm not going to rehash a lot of a lot of that information that's there. But one of the points that I really want to to drive home is um, the location information that's that's stored upon a, a smartphone. Not only when you take a picture, does do the GPS coordinates actually go into and become part of the file of the, of the image that you took a picture of, but a lot of these applications as well. Uh, from the smartphone, if you're doing Foursquare or you want to find out where the cheapest gas is, how does it determine that? It needs to know where you are before it can tell you where the the cheapest gas is in relation to where where you, where you're at. So the GPS information is is very very critical uh, and a critical component. You'll probably recall that uh, Sharon a- Apple got in trouble a, a few months back when they said it was a bug in their software that they were keeping two years worth of. Uh, <laughs> GPS location information on their iPhones, and and they they did an update so that they wouldn't be saving as much information. Which we kind of we really didn't like that because now all of a sudden we lost all this great info, evidence that we had. But but anyway, and from our point of view, it wasn't a bug; it was a feature. That's right. <laughs> too bad. Too bad it, it uh, became public. But it's it's a tremendous amount of information that these smartphones hold, and and in uh, in this particular case. We've got disposable phones going on here, and we're going to talk in a little bit about uh, triangulation and what happens with with cell phones, et cetera, and and data data location services. But it's it's really 
amazing. I know a lot of folks don't realize that you, in fact, are visible just because you're carrying around this little beacon, you know, that that's called a phone. <laughs> well, let, let's let's go back to her phone, because one of the things that they noted right away was that it showed a missed call. And that, of course, was Beth calling to check in and she hadn't heard from her. So she texted her under her, her name of Cracker and she said, text me back and let me know your evening was OK, babe. And of course, she sent that at 11, 11 p.m. And Jalissa was at that point dead. So on April 15th, Beth called detectives because she had called security when Julissa failed to check in. And she revealed, knowing now that her friend was dead, she revealed the 10 p.m. appointment with Andy M. She gave them Andy's phone number and his email, which was amdpm at live.com. Forensics would have taken a lot, lot longer. The police were able to determine that there were two different cell phones used to contact the victim's the victims, and they were both disposable. They were prepaid, untraceable. But it did occur to them, could he have used his real cell phone probably somewhere at around the same time, same location? It was unfortunate that that day their own computer forensics officer in Boston was out sick. But coincidentally, the FBI, there were three agents there on a completely unrelated matter, and they pulled up cell phone information for 15 minutes before and after the crime at the cell towers nearest the incident. And I got to tell you, when I read that, I went, holy Toledo or something much stronger, because who knew the police could do that just then and there? Uh, I had no idea that that was possible. Well, you know, they got that blank warrant always in their pocket. Yeah, apparently they do. <laughs> so they, they found that the phones were used in overlapping areas of Boston and that one had been bought in South Boston. They subpoenaed Microsoft for the email address. Um, and Microsoft was very prompt in, in, in answering. They said it had been set up moments before uh, the murderer answered Jalissa's email and never used again. There were just a total of three connections in, with respect to this when apparently he made the appointment, uh, had to cancel the appointment, which he had had the previous evening before the murder, and then reestablish the appointment. The IP address was uh, created in Quincy. So now they went to Comcast to find out information about who had created it. Um, so it was it was a great break in, in this case, no question about it. And then on April 17th, there was sort of another break. They knew their guy was still active and around because there was an attack in Warwick, Rhode Island on Cynthia Melton, who was an exotic dancer also advertising on Craigslist. She had been staying in the Holiday Inn Express with her husband. And once again, he pulled a gun, he, he cuffed her with the white flexicuffs, and he was shaking and he said he needed money, he was very nervous, and then the phone rang. And when there was no answer, the husband, as had been prearranged as a security precaution, knocked on the door, and then the murderer, or would-be murderer here, fled, and he was caught again on, on camera texting on his phone. Now, Comcast said it would need two weeks to respond without an emergency order, but they supplied that emergency order very quickly, and so at 10.30 p.m. on April 18th, the information came in, and the man who was identified as, as having set up the email was Philip Markoff, 8 High Point Circle in Quincy. So how, how do you get some of this information? We kind of joked around a little bit about, you know, law enforcement and, and warrants, et cetera. But from a civil perspective, you're going to need to subpoena the ISPs or the telecommunication company or whatever. And what you get in a civil case versus what information is retrievable or at least available in criminal cases varies. And we've seen this. These are all public records that, that uh, we've, we've investigated and the... It seems that when you're talking about criminal matters, 
there's a lot more information that that comes to light than the attorneys get when they're doing a civil case. So, and it varies by by carrier. It varies by you know ISP. What's the information that they carry, they hold, etc. Generally, they're going to have IP addresses, date and times of connections, uh, maybe some uh, login information that that occurred. But when you make these requests, the ISP is going to basically state that they're not going to give you the information because of the Stored Communications Act. So they won't give you the contents. They'll give you information about logins and that kind of stuff, but not about not the actual email message or or text message or whatever, those contents that that are there. Now, in this particular case, when Microsoft um, responded back, and you you can go and look at the the, the public documents that, that they responded with, they did, in fact, respond back with the contents of email messages for that um, um, that email address that, that Sharon had mentioned earlier. So, But generally, you're not going to get that unless it's a, a criminal matter. Uh, retention period is going to vary by ISP. Uh, what we tell folks a lot most of the time is if it's older than 30 days, you're probably not going to be able to get the information because the ISP or the, the communications carrier is going to say, we don't have it. So before we move on to the next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Gallivan, Gallivan, and Amelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents, realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking about the digital trail that led to the discovery of the Craigslist killer. So, John, where did we leave off? I think we're on April 19th. Correct. And at this point, the police are doing what police apparently do these days, which kind of amazed me. They're going to Facebook to do Internet research about the Philip Markoff that was identified by Comcast. They found out he was 23 and a BU medical student and that he was engaged to a young lady name of, whose name was Megan McAllister. Facebook very happily provided detectives with a printed copy of everything on his Facebook account, all posts, photos, etc. And the private information of all of his friends was also revealed, which is kind of amazing and has huge privacy implications. And the police, when they turned over their files to the Boston Phoenix, they didn't redact any of that information. It was the Phoenix itself who chose to redact private information of others. So that was pretty interesting, too. And maybe you can talk for a moment, John, about getting social media evidence. Yeah, similar to the ISPs, you do have to do the request, you know, to them. Uh, look, look at the 
terms of terms and conditions and anything that may be on the website. And typically they're going to have procedures and, and what you need to do. Facebook, as an example, you have to, um, uh, serve a, a valid California subpoena, but they give you the, the corporate address and all this other stuff as to where you need to go to, to do all that. I said before with the ISPs, you get different information than with criminal matters versus, uh, c- civil matters. Uh, and, and I'm going to, sorry, but I'm going to pick on Facebook because, because <laughs> Facebook is, is the 8,000 pound gorilla. It's, it's bigger than 800 pounds, um, that, that's out there, but they do in fact have information as to how to, to, get the information from Facebook. If you have user consent, they will re, um, give that information to you. Otherwise, just like the ISPs, they're just going to give you IP logs and, and those kinds of things. But the interesting part about Facebook is that we're not really sure, I think, what information they they hold and how long they hold it, uh, What certainly what they publicize they hold and the information they hold isn't, it isn't reality. And as an example, there's an Australian law student that made a request to, to Facebook, so Facebook Australia, for his own information. He said, I want, I want to see all the data that Facebook has. And what he got back was 1,222 pages worth of information that covered three years worth of his activity. And that, that's, nobody thought, oh my God, he's got three years, Facebook holds three years worth of this stuff. But the really scary part about, about that is the information that they gave him identified his deleted wall posts, deleted email addresses, any friends that he had removed, and probably even scarier was the latitude and longitude of every single logon to Facebook. Nowhere on the site do they identify that that's the kind of information that they carry and they hold. But yet, as as evident here, through public records, we know that they, in fact, have a heck of a lot more than what they're telling people. Well, now that we have the police officers knowing that the suspect lives in High Point Circle in Quincy, of course, a surveillance unit was formed. And when Markov went to the grocery store, he went to uh, BJ's. They fingerprinted everything he picked up that he put back on the shelf, which must have been amusing for other people to see. And they asked for his cart when he left and, and exchanged some pleasantries with him and, of course, dusted that for fingerprints. The detectives, greatly to their credit, were very much afraid that they would have tunnel vision, uh, that they were so focused on this one guy that they were missing something and that this was not the appropriate suspect. And one of the things that worried them was what if someone had poached Markov's wireless, which John is going to talk about. Yeah, and we've had several cases that, that have shown up like this. So this occurs when you have unsecured wireless access points. And from the consumer perspective, there's a lot of them. Um, I think it was, what, 63% or something like that, Sharon? The, yeah. the RSA said that they're left at, at defaults. Defaults, yeah. And, yeah. and th- this, I'm sure, applies to a lot of our listeners who have done the same thing. Yeah, they, they just don't change anything. They they open the box, they plug the power cord in, they connect up the internet, and boom, they've got this wireless going on. Uh, but it's unsecured. So what the police were afraid of was that in this apartment complex was Markov's or, or their suspect's wireless potentially uh, unsecured, so they really didn't have the right person. Maybe it was somebody two doors down the hall or, or whatever it is. Uh, we have several cases right now as an, uh, as an example of um, – Folks that uh, other individuals, uh, it appears, have used their wireless connection in order to download child pornography, to send out spam. Uh, those are two common things that, that folks do with, uh, with wireless. But 
if, if you do, in fact, have a wireless uh, connection and you're, you're in charge of all that, uh, I would suggest that as a minimum what you do is you enable logging because, unfortunately, logging is not enabled by default. And what that's going to do is if, if the feds come knocking at your door thinking that per, perhaps you've been downloading child pornography via those logs, you can show that, wait a minute, there's other devices that have been connected up that you don't control. So our story is now up to April 20th. And at 2 o'clock, Markov left home with a suitcase and Megan, and there was great panic, as you can imagine, because they didn't know if he was fleeing or what was going on. The Meltons, who had been interviewed, had not made a clear identification. Undoubtedly, they were fairly panic-stricken when he ran out of the room and really didn't have a clear memory, so they couldn't ID um, Mr. Markov from the, the photos. So they were trying to determine what to do. It was, it was very upsetting because, of course, there was a sea of brass on this case and they were getting a lot of pressure to close it. They decided to pull him over and he didn't go easily because he sped up when he saw the flashing lights and, in fact, was going 85 miles an hour. And I'm sure Megan in the car with him was going, what are you doing? So he finally pulled over. They seized the vehicle as they are allowed to do with probable cause in Massachusetts and took him to the police station, which he consented to. And he had said that he was heading to face Foxwoods, excuse me, casino, which apparently he was known to gamble a lot as they learned later. So they took Megan into one interview room and they took Markoff into another. And Markoff kind of played the detective, said he might have walked through the lobby because he, he knew about the cameras, of course. And he finally invoked his right to an attorney, and the detective said it was the most disastrous interview they had ever conducted. Then they went through uh, Megan's interview. And they were convinced at first that she knew, but they were dumbfounded by her. She appeared quite genuine. She was nervous now about going home with him. She said, what is he, one suspect out of two? Is he one suspect out of 30? And finally, one of the detectives afterwards said, either she's the best liar in the world or she just doesn't know what time it is. Uh, and that was really the case. She, she didn't know. They didn't really know what to do at this point, because if Markov had asked to be released, they would have to let him go. So their hands were kind of tied here. Fortunately, Detective Freeman was in New York City with Trish Leffler, the, the victim of the second robbery. And when she saw Markov's photo, she became very teary and, and very shaken up. And she said immediately that she was one million percent sure that this was her attacker. So now they had enough for armed robbery and kidnapping charges. They argued a little bit about the murder charge. Uh, and they advised Markov that he was under arrest at 4.13 in the afternoon. Really interesting. He did not ask what the charges were. They got a search warrant for the apartment. And first they thought they were coming out dry, but then they started doing the really heavy-duty stuff, like they took the dryer out, and they found ammunition taped behind the dryer. They found the gun. You'll remember that he was a, a BU medical student. They found the gun in a hollowed-out copy of Grey's Anatomy. Then they flipped over the mattress where they found women's underwear and one of the disposable phones. In short order, they came up with the, the holster, the wire ties, and the black leather jacket, and now the murder charge was brought. Uh, it, it was kind of interesting because this was also the day of the Boston Marathon, so Philip Markoff was one half of the paper and the other half was the marathon winner. So in the following months, they learned about his gambling problem. They determined that there was blood on his shoe, inside his jacket pocket, and on the gun. All the disposable phones had been found, and the fingerprints matched at all three scenes. At his arraignment, he pled not guilty, and Megan defended him at first. Then she thought about it apparently some more. She visited him in jail and broke their engagement. Markov attempted suicide four times, which is quite a lot, and he was under a suicide watch, but for some reason, they took him off the suicide watch. 
His trial was slated for March of 2011, but on August 14, 2010, which would have been his one-year anniversary if he had married Megan, he committed suicide, making a homemade scalpel. He severed multiple arteries. He put a bag over his head and stuffed toilet paper down his throat so that there was no way he could be resuscitated. Interestingly enough, here comes Facebook again, and there had been a Facebook page created that was entitled, Phil Markoff is Innocent Until Proven Guilty, and his brother posted a picture of, of himself with Phil at his, the brother's wedding, saying, Phil, I will always love you. One of the most interesting things about this case to us was that the pivotal clue, the one that really broke the case, was digital. And that was the email address, amdpm at live.com. And if you look at amdpm, translated, it's a Dr. Philip Markoff. So I hope you've enjoyed this amazing story of conventional forensics and digital forensics intertwined together. We hope you've enjoyed it. And perhaps the greatest lesson to come from this investigation is that none of us has any privacy once we come to the attention of law enforcement or the government. And, and, and perhaps the, the takeaway there is um, don't use a cell phone anymore and don't get on social media. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's computer forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.